Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. Source by Sound Agriculture sponsors this podcast about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. Blake Vince of Merlin, Ontario farms about 1,200 acres of corn, soybeans, and wheat. Vince, a Nuffield scholar, is particularly proud of his heavy use of cover crops, inspired by no-till legend Dave Brandt. Here's no-till farmer editor Frank Lesseter talking to Vince about his operation. Blake, I know you're in uh, southern Ontario. Why don't you tell us a little about where you're located? And I think one of the things that our U.S. people can relate to is your soils along that north side of Lake Erie are much like they are in maybe Indiana, Illinois. Is that right? Yeah, there's definitely some pockets that are uh, similar soil type, northern Ohio, too, for sure. I'm located in a little place called Merlin, Ontario, Canada, north of Merlin. You'll find a small hamlet called Fletcher. Ontario, and it was an old railroad siding, and we're approximately an hour's drive east of Detroit, Michigan, sure. and I'm located located straight across Lake Erie from Cleveland, Ohio, okay. so I'm right here in the bottom southern tip of Ontario, Canada. Well, I'm kind of familiar with where you are because I grew up 40 miles north of Detroit, and my mother had two aunts that lived in Rodney. We used to catch the ferry across to, I think, uh, Port Lambton and then drive over Mm -hmm. to Rodney. In those days, when I was a kid, there was still a lot of tobacco being grown in that area, right? Yep, there's a lot of tobacco grown in that Rodney area once upon a time. Not so much anymore, but you still see little relics of uh, tobacco buildings, tobacco kilns, but a lot of that has uh, long since disappeared. So did you grow up on this farm? Uh, Is this a multi-generation farm? That's correct, yeah. So I'm a fifth-generation farmer here, southwestern Ontario. Uh, my great-great-grandfather, as it were, immigrated from England. And uh, the home farm uh, where my wife and I live presently, actually, my grandfather bought that uh, probably just at the end of the of the Depression. Okay. And uh, so that's where we live today. And, and uh, the original two home pieces where my great-great-grandfather came, I can actually see it out my back window and, and uh, as well. So... The neighbors actually own that today, but nonetheless, um, it actually borders on a farm that my wife and I own as well. So, so how many acres are you farming? Mainly corn and soybeans, or other crops too? Corn, soybeans, winter wheat. Uh, we're we're right around 1,200 acres. Uh, I also grow some cover crop for seed, and I started a small little uh, grazing initiative a year ago. So I've got some areas sort of set aside where we've got some cattle roaming across the landscape. So. When did you first get started with no-till? So we started with no-till, and I say we, my dad and my two uncles that my dad had farmed with, uh, they started no-till in 1983 here. So at that time, I was just a young man, 11 years of age. And so uh, I didn't have to come home from university so many years after that fact and start (laughs) talking about this wondrous thing called no-till because my dad and my uncles were already doing it. So I guess I'm spoiled in the fact that... uh, my claim to fame is, as I'm a 50-year-old farmer this year, that I've never used a moldboard plow my entire farming career. That's great. You're ahead of me. I can remember when we used it on our <laughs> Michigan farm, but it's long gone. I'm a sixth generation on our farm, but the farm's been sold, and now it's all houses, so it's uh, no longer a farm in our area at home. But As my dad used to say, he said, I think as you as an editor found it was easier to tell others how to farm than to actually do it himself. So. <laughs> well, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, you've been uh, really big on healthy soils and cover crops and no-till. Why don't you explain to us what's what you've done, how you've changed, how you've switched, etc. So the big thing that I've brought home uh, to the operation is the use of really elaborate cover crop mixes. So for us as no-till farmers, we used to use a monoculture approach of cover crops, uh, red clover, uh, I guess would be the primary one. We'd frost seed that in the spring of the year as the wheat's breaking dormancy, just with a spinner spreader on an ATV. And then I decided there, by dumb luck, I stumbled across uh, David Brandt. And David and I have become steadfast friends. And, and we sort of challenged each other back in the early days when I met David. He was his big cover crop go-to at that time was... Uh, using primarily radish, oilseed radish, or uh, the tillage radish, as it's become known as, as well as peas. 
an alternating row configuration on with a white white corn planter on 15 inch spacing. So, and now uh, him and I sort of started down this path, uh, talking to, to different experts, advocates that we needed more of a diversified approach. These big multi-species blends. And I remember that, like in the early days, David had a summer field day, and he had these great big elaborate blends, a summer cocktail, and it was over the hood of his at the time an Alice tractor. Mm-hmm. I've and, seen those uh, at this place too. Yeah, yeah. And so I, so at, at that time, nobody was really doing that to any great extent in Ontario. And David's only five hours south of me. And I, I said, well, if he can do it here in Ohio, why can't I do it at home? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started down the path of uh, starting to mix more elaborate blends together. And, and the first year, I think we started off with five different species. And, and now we're up to like 15 to 18, depends on the year and what I can get for availability of seed supply. That's always the biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I really see that, uh, that diversity, I'm a real advocate of diversity. It doesn't have to be dense. It doesn't have to be thick to be effective. But I, I really think that diversity has a lot of value. And the, primarily because something will grow. It doesn't matter the, what, ha, what is thrown at it. As far as the weather constraints, uh, some species like will or will tolerate wet feet where others won't. Uh, some will tolerate dry weather, excessive moisture or lack thereof of moisture, right? And, and so it sort of emulates the way the natural topography was covered years ago with e- extreme diversity, mm-hmm. and that was Carolinian hardwood forest. Sure. And so talking and networking with other peers like a Dr. Dr. Dwayne Beck, um, you know, his sort of words ring true to me to this very day. And he said, Blake, you know, what was your native vegetation? And I said, well, Carolinian hardwood forest. And, and he challenged me and he said, uh, well, every year he said that tree grows. You might not see how much it grows, but it grows every year. I said, yeah, that's true. And every year it puts on leaves and it puts on seed. I said, yeah, some trees might even have fruit, true enough. And he says, well, that means one thing to me. He says, that means you've got lots of water. You just have to figure out how to get it. And the way to get it is by increasing soil porosity. And so that's, that's why we do what we do is to try and uh, mimic nature to try and get the soil opened up so that our crop roots, our annual crop roots that don't have these deep roots like trees do, can gain access to water in the soil profile. So you told me earlier it's been a real dry year in your area. So in your cover crop mix, what do you think is doing really well in dry conditions? Well, the things that are done really well in dry conditions tend to be uh, things like millet. Mm-hmm. Grasses tends to grow without a lot of moisture. Some of these smaller seed uh, species like clovers, uh, hairy vetch, it doesn't take much to get them to germinate. Buckwheat, obviously, is another another great one. Facilia. But when you have a larger seed like a faba bean, it takes mm-hmm. a lot more water to get that plant to get established and get growing. So those are some of the observations with some dry land species that, that I prefer or that have done really well this year uh, compared to other years. How about radishes? That's a popular one that do well in wet conditions or dry or both or, or what? Well, typically brassicas, are, uh, as my Australian friends would say, they're, they're a sook or a suck. <laughs> they, don't like, they don't like wet feet. Hmm. And that's true to form, right? This year, the radishes are uh, alive and well. They're thriving out there. It's dry. Uh, they're making lots of tubers, right? Everybody gets so enamored by the the radish, the size of the tuber. So it's driving down deep in the soil profile and trying to get as much water as it can. So the radishes are de- are definitely doing their job. And as are things like kale too. We have sometimes we use a little bit of kale or even some winter canola. Uh, mm-hmm. But but really for the most part, I try to stay away from kale and and canola specifically because um, they don't die with winter like a radish does. And so then that just becomes a weed that I have to manage. Uh, the following year for my annual crop rotation. So what's your annual rainfall there? Well, including snowfall, sadly, we're only at about 16 inches of precip. And where I live, if we, we look at a map of the Great Lakes, that little puddle that's in the Great Lake chain, Lake St. Clair that borders on sure. Michigan in Ontario, that actually provides a bit of a rain shadow. And uh, so even though we're surrounded by all this fresh water, 
where really at times the, the major storms will go north of us and drive across the shoreline of Lake Huron, going up north along Godrich Bayfield up that way. They'll get more extreme weather than we will. And even when you see uh, southern or northern Ohio, that would be the southern shore of Lake Erie, get bombarded with uh, some extreme weather. We're sort of protected here because of that little Lake St. Clair. Now, mm-hmm. you know, the, and then that's good as well in the winter. Even our winter precipitation levels at times are, are pretty scant. Uh, we'll tend to get cold. That'll, that'll afford me the opportunity to go ice fishing. But to have a lot of snow during the winter months at times, it's more of a rarity than it is a normal normalcy. Yeah, that kind of amazes me because when we farmed, we were about 40 miles north of Detroit, and we were getting 30 inches of rainfall, but we were on the other side of Lake St. Clair, too. So Exactly, exactly. And I, wow. and I see that all the time. And like today, you know, that's the downside of technology uh, growing up, right? You couldn't, you couldn't see these storm events coming, coming across to the same extent mm-hmm. with Doppler radar. Uh, but now today, when we're, we're so in tune with our phones at our hips, we can see these storms that are developing, and they'll start across the Midwest, get to Chicago, a great big storm system, come screaming across the state of Michigan, like you mentioned, and then they get to us, and they sort of either drive north or they drive south of us. And, you know, you're sitting here with your tongue hanging out, wanting a drink, and, and it's all for naught, right? So right. That's, that's the joys of farming. Well, we live in Milwaukee, and when my before my dad passed away, when I would talk to him, his first question always was, "What's the weather there today?" Because he knew <laughs> north of Detroit is what they were going to get tomorrow. So. Exactly, exactly. So th- this is a dry year for you. How much water or precipitation you got this year? So at the start of August, I'm doing a lot of edge of field research with my local conservation authority. So we have some high tech equipment that's measuring phosphorus and nitrogen that's coming out of tile drains. Mm -hmm. as well as we're measuring every ounce of precipitation, including snow. And uh, I was talking to one of the technicians earlier on the project, and he told me at the start of August we were eight inches below our 30-year average. And so our 30-year average, like I said, is about 16 inches. And so we were about, you know, eight inches shy of that, so half half our normal rainfall or precipitation for the year. And you can imagine, you know, when you're that stifled for water, uh, in a rain-fed environment, it's pretty hard on crop growth. Now, I, I say that kind of sheepishly, obviously, Frank, because I know a lot of my colleagues across the Midwest have been harder hit than I have even been. So I'm, I'm sure. you know, I'm, I'm trying to be respectful and, and sensitive because I know guys are far worse off than we are. Yeah, no doubt. How are you making the best use of this water, this short shortage of water that you do have? So normal, that's why I work so tirelessly to use all these cover crops. And some, some people would say, well, the cover crops are using up water. So because our soil, our base soil is heavy clay content, we're old glacial lake bottom, uh, it tends to, to hold on to a lot of water, thankfully, but also it prevents you from getting planted at times in a timely fashion. There's a lot of the areas across the province have long since planted their crop and we're still waiting for our soils to dry in the spring. But I know that time will come and there will be an opportunity to plant. But that's why I work so tirelessly to maintain this residue, to trap winter precipitation, to increase the water in the soil profile. So having these robust covers trap every little ounce of winter precipitation I can get, as well as it really helps prevent later on in the season when you've got that decayed cover crop residue there on the surface, it provides that nice uh, bio mulch to prevent a lot of water loss through evapotranspiration. So that's the real advantage. And then, and then as well as having soil that's not disturbed, we have a lot better uh, porosity. So we've got a lot better air. So then you get air and water exchange ratios that are more in balance, increased earthworm activity, all of these great things that you and I know are a real advantage for, uh, for a season like this when, when cards just aren't in your favor. You mentioned Dwayne Beck earlier, and we had him as a speaker at our very first National Notowitz Conference in Indianapolis in 1993. And I still remember a comment that he made. And he said, you guys in Ohio and Indiana know till to get rid of the water. And out in South Dakota, we know till to keep every drop we can get. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sort of somewhere in between that scenario, I would say, <laughs> truthfully. And, and uh, But, there, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, 
uh, gems that come from Dr. Beck's lips that, uh, that really, you know, I, I have come to appreciate uh, the longer I, I know the man. That's 30 years ago, and I still remember that one. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you was pretty well split 50-50 on corn and soybeans? or No, we, we tend to be a little heavier on uh, soybeans in our rotation. So typically our rotation is corn followed by two years of soybeans and then winter wheat. And the winter wheat will always get a big elaborate cover, cover crop planted after it. So I would say we're not not quite 50% soybeans and then and then the balance of those other two crops like i mentioned and the reason we've done that is cuz here soybeans have our have been our more consistent predictable crop year in sure. and year out and so that's why and and one that has driven not only predictability from a production perspective but also has been the one that's paid the bills mm-hmm. so you know, corn can be a great crop, but, you know, we've all experienced the downturn in the market. And now, it's, you know, very strong prices presently, obviously. And wheat, you know, there's a lot more variability with wheat. Uh, that's come a long way with better introduction of varieties as well as uh, different management techniques, too. And the wheat, wheat has definitely uh, caught a lot of people's attention lately with what's going on in the Ukraine. And, and then, of course, that's driven the price up, too. So, yeah. Yeah, but then in the Corn Belt down here, we've had a tough time getting farmers to grow wheat because the price wasn't that good and they could make more money off corn and soybeans. But you're right, the prices of all three of these commodities is helping that. But uh, you talked about the need for diversity earlier on, and same thing as in rotations. How do you convince people that are really corn and soybean diehards to put wheat in that rotation? Well, first off, you know, there's a lot of things out of our control. Uh, having accessibility to a market for us sure. in southwestern Ontario makes wheat an easier conversation to have with most producers. I think we're, spo- I think we're spoiled, right. right? A lot of people in the Midwest, uh, first and foremost, are discouraged to grow wheat because of the distance that they have to travel to get rid of the crop. And so if there, w- if there was more um, readily accessible market, then you know, maybe people would would look at that again. But I think that's the first stepping stone. Like, you know, I don't want to beat around the bush, but I think a lot of it comes from the fact that uh, the subsidy component goes a long way to determining what guys tend to grow mm-hmm. and why they grow it, right? And uh, the, pow- the power at B of the, the groups that represent those interests, they swing a big stick. Right. What are you uh, using for equipment? What are you uh, planting and seeding with? I'm, I like to take a page at a Ray Steyer's book a long time, uh, No-Till Advocates from down in the Carolinas, and, and Ray had an old Alice Chalmers no-till planner. But I'm not that far back, uh, Frank. <laughs> I have an old John Deere 7000 uh, planner that we have well-equipped to no-till our crop. Um, o- over the years, you know, we've put coulters on. We've taken coulters off. Today, I'm not running any coulters in front of my uh, John Deere 7000. Uh, it no t- and I actually, that's a tip I probably learned from one of your speakers at your conference. And it works just fabulously. We don't, we don't have any lead coulters. Uh, we don't have any trash whippers. Uh, I have heavy-duty down-pressure springs. Um, I have some other modifications that I've put on uh, a double set of closing wheels across the back of the planter to help try and close the, the seed trench when we're planting into some of these big covers. Um, you know, notched, notched cast closing wheels, but nothing really, nothing really out of the ordinary. I guess the only thing from a no-till perspective, we like to use a Keaton seed firmer, put a little fer- liquid fertilizer down in the furrow. And uh, really that's it as pertains to corn, uh, soybeans and wheat are uh, sown with a 1990 John Deere CCS air seeder. You know, that, that's what we're using in that regard to sow all of those cover crops as well as, as wheat. And, you know, it, it works. Uh, it has worked fine for us in the past. When we first got started no-tilling, th- there wasn't the tools on the market that are so accessible today. Right. And so my dad, my dad and my uncles actually used a, a Thai grain drill mm-hmm. with a Great right. Plains Colzer cart. That's how they got started. You know, they got some information on how to no-till corn, and they had three Colzers set across the front of the 7, 000, a 7,000 planter, a smaller 7,000 planter at the time across the front much like um much like the uh the Ray the Ray Rawson system out of Michigan, yeah. right? 
And exactly, exactly. And we, we found that for in our soil type though, that some years when the soil wasn't quite a hundred percent fit, that that would just put way too much air down into the seed trench Mm -hmm. and the soils would dry out and it would affect your, your establishment and uh, affect seedling vigor. And now that since we've gone just to using the double disc openers only, um, and even no lead coulter, really our stands are are really, I, I think, quite good for corn. So considering the technology has long since been bought and paid for. We'll come back to Frank Lesseter and Blake Vince in a moment. I'd like to first thank our sponsor, Source by Sound Agriculture, for supporting today's podcast. Source from Sound Agriculture unlocks more of the nitrogen and phosphorus in your fields, so you can rely less on expensive fertilizer. This foliar application has a low use rate, and you can mix it right into your tank. Check out Source. It's like caffeine for microbes. Learn more at www.sound.ag. Before we get back to the discussion with Blake, here's No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lesseter answering a reader question. Somebody asked me recently what I think are going to be some of the concerns with agriculture in the future. And in the history book for No-Till, which we did a couple years ago, there was one little section we did called Major Concerns Impacting Agriculture's Future. And with an ever-expanding world population, less fresh water and warmer worldwide temperatures, there's going to be some impact on whether we can grow enough food to feed the world over the next few decades. For instance, by 2030, the United Nations predicts the world's population will reach 8.5 billion people compared with 7.3 billion people a few years back. By 2050, the world expects to have 10 billion mouths to feed each day. Looking at the climate change since 1900, the Earth's average surface temperatures increased by 1.3 degrees Fahrenheit and some researchers expect another seven degree temperature gain by the end of this century. So by 2030, the world will need 30% more fresh water than what's used today. Increased emphasis must be placed on irrigation to boost yields in order to feed the world. And no-till, regenerative ag, cover crops, etc., is gonna have a big impact on whether we can get this done or not. Now back to Frank and Blake. Talk about your cover crops a little bit more. What the, what have been the economic advantages to you? So the economic advantages, first and foremost, you got to start to think about um, reduced depreciation on machinery. Okay. That would be the biggest economic advantage because I'm I'm not using any tillage equipment. Zero. I'm letting the roots do the work of driving down into deep into the soil profile and providing that soil tilth that everybody strives for by using tillage. So then the next big savings is diesel fuel. And I haven't even mentioned my time, okay? That's another big savings. So we look at depreciation, we look at fuel, we look at time. The the advantage of the cover crop then also becomes the production of nitrogen vis-a-vis legumes. I have a lot of legumes in my mix. So if I'm gonna grow a crop like corn the following year, obviously I can reduce my expenditure. And I don't look at it reducing it like 50%, 30% even. Uh, but what I look at is a lot of guys get excited about um, maximizing nitrogen, especially a late season application of nitrogen mm-hmm. in the form of Y dropping, right? To give them that boost during pollination. And I like to think that that cover crop, the value of that cover crop as that nitrogen has been released from those decaying legumes is a perfect sync with when the corn is pollinating, so that Y dropping interval. And so then I don't have the mechanical damage of driving through the crop, I don't have the time spent, I don't, you know, on and on and on it goes. So then the things that we really have a hard time monetizing, which that's always the case, are what are the cover crops doing as far as providing beneficial habitat for um, predator insects? As you guys have written about many times in your magazine, you talk about slugs. We're seeing a lot of beneficial insects. We've done pitfall traps in the past, capturing data on like carabid beetles that are there, spiders, millipedes, uh, 
all sort of insects, a multitude of insects that are going to help eat weed seeds as well as eat things like slugs, right? That are, that are detrimental to soybean uh, development, right? They go after that emerging cotyledon. So those are the things we start to see. And then, you know, the, the big picture, the 24,000 foot view of the farm, we start to see a return of avian predators too. So we start to see things like uh, ground nesting birds, like a bobo link have come back in full flight. Uh, you see evidence of their fledglings out here in the field, you know, the little the birds that have left the nest. And, and uh, so that, that's kind of cool. It gives you the warm fuzzies, but you know, are you making, are you making any monetary gain from those things? You know, lots of people would argue I'm not, right. but um when I get when I get people that come out to the farm like just total strangers and they start sitting on the edge of the field and start taking pictures because they enjoy seeing some of these things, that gives me great satisfaction, right? right. And and I right. and I personally like that old Mastercard uh, commercial. In my opinion, that's priceless. Right, right. I've seen some people here in Wisconsin are using multi-species cover crop mixes and they say one of the things they always put in is sunflowers because the people in the area really love looking at them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I I like having the sunflowers in there too. Uh mostly because mostly because when that sunflower plant dies, it's a black residue. Mm-hmm. And for me, that black residue attracts sunlight and then it helps warm up that soil more in the spring. And then also it's got a really nice big deep tap root. So again, drives down deep in the soil profile, helps open up that, that soil, provide more porosity. I call it a double-edged sword. It makes my wife happy, my mother-in-law happy, my sister-in-law is happy as you give them a nice bouquet of sunflowers. And then for me, for me, it's doing all those other things that I mentioned as well. So you, are you, how do you measure the fertility benefit you're getting from cover crops? So uh, how do we measure the fertility benefit that we get from cover crops? That's a pretty good question, Frank. We're, we do, uh, I use an independent agronom, agronomist. Uh, so we'll do, some, we'll do some soil tests. And uh, this circles back a few years ago where I had this agronomist. We did the soil test before we planned the cover crop. And so she knew what the soil tests were. And I just simply said to, to her, her name's Lynn. I said, Lynn, let's go for a walk. I said, I want you to walk to where you know that the lowest um, fertility in this field was. And so she pointed in the direction. I said, yeah, that's correct. So we walked over there. And in that area, that field was just dominated by this one species. And it drew, and it caught her attention. She says, Blake, she goes, what is this? She goes, I don't see it anywhere else in the field. I said, well, this is millet. Uh-huh. And, it just, and it just backs up what I said earlier in that when we have these diverse blends, something will grow. She goes, well, why don't I see that anywhere else? I see, I see, I see it millet, this millet has just dominated this low fertility area, but it's nowhere else to be found. Mm-hmm. And I said, in my opinion, the soil knows what it wants to grow for its own benefit. As farmers, though, year over year, we plant corn there because we want to grow corn to make money sure. or soybeans or wheat or whatever. By, but we're really ignoring what the soil wants to fix itself, to feed the biological community that's there. And that's the only way really that I can describe it in layman's terms to you. And so the next thing I did to my agronomist was I said, okay, what's the soil recommendation for this two, these two fields? So we had field A, which was 25 acres and field B, which was 25 acres. We'd done the soil test at the same time. They both had cover crop accordingly. And I said, we've got to see what the value of the cover crop is. Agreed? And she says, yes. I said, okay. Well, on this field, I said, we're going to put on 50% of whatever the recommendation is for P and K both. And the other field, we're going to do full recommendation. And then we're going to take it to yield. So we did just that. 50% on each field. Or 50% on field A, 100% on field B. We took both fields to yield. At the end of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, there was no difference in yield. Wow. None. So what field obviously made me more money? The field that I didn't spend the fertilizer on. Right. But the, 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 long, the longer story is now when we look at the indices 
Okay, and we've come back to those fields and retested them again a few years later. The indices aren't showing a deficit. In actuality, the, the indices have not changed, period, right? They haven't gotten better. They haven't gotten worse. And so I look at it and I say, okay, well, what's the value? Are we able to start recycling some of this fertility that are, that's stored at depth, right, that, that uh, is there and allow those microbes to bring the stuff back full circle? Like we've all, we've all heard, like we've all heard this time and time again, but until you put it into action, um, and see what is truly possible, do you become, do you finally become a believer in, in that we can get away from some of these things and not be so dependent upon them? I've heard a number of people talk recently about phosphorus and there some soil scientists are saying we've got fields that've got 20 years worth of phosphorus in the ground. We keep putting more on it. So why, you know, the question is, why are we doing that? Yeah. And that, you know, and that's what propelled me actually to do my Nuffield, my Nuffield topic of research uh, was, was because of phosphorus specifically ending up in, in great, in the great lakes, Lake Erie. Mm -hmm. sure. And, uh, and they were, and they were vilifying, they were vilifying what I was doing as a farmer as a no-tiller, they were saying, well, because you're no-tilling, you're increasing the number of earthworms, thereby you're increasing the conduits that are directly going into your tile drain that you have in your topography, and then that's carrying that water off the field and into the, the ditch and ultimately into the river and then the lake. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. I said, you know, I don't want to stop no-tilling for all the reasons I've already stated, um, and I don't believe for a second that the lowly earthworm, Dar Darwin's lowly earthworm, is the problem here. And I, like I said, nobody's capturing data as far as land overflows. It's easy to vilify a tile drain because you can put some measuring device on top of that because it's in a fixed location. But I said, what about when it pours six inches and things just run off the landscape in a random area? I said, are you there to capture all that data that comes off there? Well, the, we already know the answer to that question. Sure. And I said, and what about all the sewage and the human effluent? I said, what about the millions of people that live around the lake that aren't farmers? Mm -hmm. I said, like you and I both know, on a daily basis, they're contributing to the problem whether they like it or they don't. It's just human nature, right? Yeah. So, but, you know, they don't want to hear that. They want to point the easy button or push the easy button rather than point the finger of blame at someone else. So... Speaking of Lake Erie, we, I mean, and just what you said is what we hear. We hear all kinds of flack from the Ohio side about what's going on in Lake Erie. Is this just as important or in, on the northern side in Canada or not? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely it is. And uh, the, the difference is uh, Lake Erie in Canada is a federally regulated entity. In the U.S., that same water body is regulated by every state right. that borders on that, that water body. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's mired, it's mired in several layers of bureaucracy on both sides of the border. Okay. So here are the people in Ontario that live and surround the great lakes and contribute to it either positively or negatively. Their voice essentially is either a municipal or a regional type voice with a conservation authority or it's your provincial voice, but really the regulator at the end of the day are the feds, just the opposite way in the states. So they, they try to put policies in place here in Ontario to help farmers work towards reducing the amount of input that they're, that they're using as far as the four R's, that policy is alive and well on both sides of the border. Um, you hear that time and time again. They want farmers to try and use soil tests when they're making their application to the, to the field. Um, you know, the, there's obviously, there's, there's policies written about manure application, things like that. But, but again, sadly, we see many, many times through the course of the year, this year was an exception because it was so dry, but when we have these big rain events and we see uh, bypass happen at these wastewater treatment facilities, all of the work that the farmers do at the farm landscape is very quickly undone by these right. people that choose to allow this to continually happen instead of addressing the problem.
And, you know, we all know that expression and pardon my French, Frank, but the thing will remain true forever. That shit does run downhill. (laughs) Right, right. You're planting green, right? Yes, sir. Everything or? I try to plant soybeans green into cereal rye. Uh, I love cereal rye and the fact that it's very allopathic. It helps prevent uh, things like you guys would call it mare's tail, Canada flea bane. Um, it keeps that in check and other broadleaf type weeds. So it's very, very effective at that. And so I'll just broadcast after corn harvest into corn stalks just as a fertilizer spreader. Uh, I try to achieve between 60 and 90 pounds as my target of seed per acre. And then we'll plant corn green into these big elaborate cover crops that are planted after winter wheat. Now, based on rotation this year, I had a couple fields, or I had one field of corn, I guess, that was planted into uh, a wheat field that didn't survive winter. So I didn't want to go back to third year soybeans. So it became a corn field. And uh, one of my planted green fields that was going to be corn uh, ended up getting planted to soybeans because I didn't want to have that many corn acres. So I no-tilled, uh, I no-tilled one of my corn crops or one of my cornfields into just soybean stubble, which, you know, it works fine. But, but really, then I don't get the benefit of the legume um, right. for that corn crop, right? And the soybeans don't need all of that legume uh, benefit, really. So, you know, it's just one of those years where things didn't work according to plan. But in an ideal year, yes, we would plant, try to plant corn green into a big cover crop and uh, plant soybeans green and cereal rye. But sometimes you just got to deal with the cards you dealt. So a few years ago, you were pretty much non-GMO. So are you still that way or not? I'm still 100% non-GMO. Okay. Uh, soybeans and, and corn both. And uh, when corn when corn is $5 a bushel and I was getting a 50-cent kiss, that's 10%. Mm-hmm. Now, soybeans are uh, right now they're white highlands are about five dollars a bushel premium here i'm growing black highlands they're about two dollars a bushel premium wow um and corn though sadly has remained fixed at about 50 cents to 75 cents mm-hmm. and and the base price for corn right now is is over eight bucks on the board sure. so the the pay the premium pace uh, for corn has not kept up like soybeans has. And so the, the advantages or the attractiveness of growing non-GMO corn is not nearly as attractive as it was when corn was not worth as much as it is currently. And, and so I, I, you know, I'm constantly one of these guys that's looking at the economics and I'm, I would say that this year for sure I am I am behind my contemporaries growing non-GMO corn because they, they picked, they picked up bushel extra bushels that I haven't got growing, growing non-GMO. Um, and so the premium, the premium is not going to, is not going to make up for that loss in yield. Now, by doing this, have you reduced your uh, emphasis on Roundup? Oh, for sure. No, definitely. Uh, so obviously I can't do an in-crop with non-GMO of, of use of glyphosate. So that pretty much restricts me to using glyphosate as a burn down um, and or post harvest, right? Sometimes yeah. you try and control perennials that way. Um, but, you know, again, this year in the drought, like it's really made me contemplate my strategy. I'll be quite honest. You know, we've had a lot of weed escapes this year uh, because herbicides haven't worked effectively and you really, you really look at yourself in the mirror and dig deep and say, okay, is this really worth the anxiety? And, <laughs> right. you know, because that's what it comes down to, you know, when you're, when you look across the road and your and your neighbor has a perfectly pristine field, sure. um, doesn't have the weeds and you're dealing with the weeds and everybody's, you know, looking over the fence saying, what the hell is he doing over there? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really been a hard it's been a hard uh, pill to swallow this year as you've, you know, as we've watched all of this unfold, but because uh, as farmers, I think we're all collectively very proud. We'd be, we'd be fools to say we aren't of how things look, right? We want things to look exactly. a certain way. And, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, we're still making money. We're still making payments. We're still moving the ball down the field. So, you know, it's okay. 
So there's pressure on right now. There's pressure on Roundup. There's pressure on Paraquat. There's pressure on Atrazine. If we get curbed on some of these, can we still expand the no-till acreage? I don't intend to quit. I think that uh, like the rubber shortage in the Second World War, sometimes uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And I, I hope that there's other people that are looking at things the way I do, either with a sharp pencil, like I try to push, or with pride, whatever it is, whatever their motivator is, that they're willing to get their back up against the wall and figure this out. And I, I do know, you know, like, I, like most farmers, I tried to do some experiments annually. I do know, um, I would agree with Marion Calmer that probably the best return on investment is nitrogen. And I've done some zero end checks and that inevitably is not what I'm looking forward to if they ever decide to curb us on the use of nitrogen. Uh, but they're trying, I think they're trying to by pricing it accordingly and deterring us from trying to use as much as we have in the past. Uh, you know, your question regarding revert, reverting back to using or can we continue to no-till, the price of diesel fuel in itself is the, my biggest deterrent. And mm -hmm the cost of machinery is right up there as well. Like I, I just don't see, I don't understand how guys aren't intimidated, aren't intimidated or aren't as concerned about doing all of this recreational tillage. I still see it happening out there to a great extent, even with diesel fuel priced the way it is and, and, sure. uh, and machinery, the same thing. Right. Right. So yeah, I'm confident that my system that I've got in front of me, can perform adequately with a significant amount of restriction. And I think that's a better way to go about it is if we can reduce the amount that each farmer is entitled to based upon your, based upon your farming operation might be one way to consider and figure it out. But we, we've, allowed, we've allowed farmers or the industry has allowed farmers to use these tools ad hoc uh, because now that's the technology we've paid for right with resistant with resistant plants right and and so of course you know they're going to just say oh here you go here's your here's your free pass to go use it accordingly and yeah. we, we haven't given much consideration about the long term effects well when you talk about water and it's interesting in california we've got we've got all these vegetable and fruit producers and almond producers yep. and uh, what's what's happening to them they're they're losing water they can't overcome the fact that they're being restricted on their water use i mean with other chemicals and fertilizers and herbicides there's some alternatives but they haven't mm -hmm. got any alternative when they can't get water i mean there's people that are plowing up almond orchards because they can't get water yeah yeah and you know one of the scary stats that I learned, Frank, when I did that scholarship, my Nuffield scholarship that you asked me about a while ago, uh, was 50% of North America's fresh fruits and vegetables comes from one state, which is California. Sure. And I think the bigger concern is, you know, when, that, when all of that produce, a lot of the fresh produce, leaves that state, and almonds the same way, or almond milk for that matter, mm -hmm. or dairy, uh, when that leaves that state, all of that water that was produced in that water cycle never returns to that water cycle. Right. Right. It's gone. It's shipped from the West over to the East. It'll never go back to that West, that West coast, that right. water. And so I think that's the bigger tragedy that we really need to start looking at. Like, what are we, what have we done to ourselves? What have we done to that? Those people that live in California because we're just exporting all their water. You mentioned the Newfield project. Why don't you talk a little about how what it's about and what you did and traveled and what you learned from it? Yeah, so Nuffield, uh, Lord Nuffield invented the MG automobile, mm -hmm. and the MG the MG automobile, Lord Nuffield uh, contributed greatly to the the British effort during the Second World War and amassed a lot of wealth. And Lord Nuffield, uh, one of his other enterprises was agriculture. He went on to produce the British Leland tractor as well and the Nuffield tractor which became the British Leland tractor that got swapped up or bought, gobbled up by Agco. Anyways, uh, Lord Nuffield realized that in order to have healthy people he had to have healthy food and he, he started these scholarships, these agricultural scholarships which have been found in the Commonwealth countries since the 1950s, early 1950s. And uh, in Canada, we're a Commonwealth country and luckily uh, 
these scholarships have been around since the 50s. So I did my scholarship in 2013. And at that time, Canada was putting out uh, three scholars a year. And it afforded me the opportunity to go around the world. I visited 11 countries um, in 2013 and 2014. And my topic of study at that time was conserving farmland with cover crops and the importance of biodiversity. And that's what I studied. I was already sort of doing my own edge of field research here on my own farm. And I thought, what a great opportunity to go around the world, learn from some people in this space and bring the information home to Canada. And that's the whole premise. We want the scholars, whatever their topic is, to, to go and study abroad, bring the information home and disseminate that freely across the landscape for the betterment of the agricultural community. We don't want the information gleaned to be proprietary. Okay, that's not mm-hmm. the premise right. of the scholarship. And, the, and essentially, you use the Nuffield Alumni Network found throughout these Commonwealth countries as a bit of a bed and breakfast. And, uh, and have them also, those scholars that you go to visit, have them point you in the direction of, right. uh, of interest for the scholar. And so, you know, I, I was fortunate enough, I really enjoyed my time down in South America. I got to see the likes of Frankie Dykstra and uh, Rolf Derpsch and Carlos Crovetto. I spent a lot of time with Carlos Crovetto as his own captive. We've had all three of them exactly. as speakers at our NOTO conference. Exactly, exactly. And uh, so it was, I was very fortunate to meet those guys. Uh, and and it really opened my eyes to uh, the world and, and how how grand agriculture is at a, at, a, at a scale outside of this area that I'm so familiar with here at home. Mm-hmm. And what Nuffield does at the end of the day, it made me realize that in the grand scheme of things, as you know, I have a business to run, a farm to operate, but really my farm means nothing, but it's my voice that matters. My willingness to share, uh, to teach other people, to, um, to lead, to give back to the community that I live and play and, and operate in, right? And, that, and that's what I've tried to do. Uh, because of Nuffield, and so I've I've been very I've been very honored to be the chairman of Nuffield Canada since 2019, and uh, and we've now we're up to the level of we're putting out six scholars annually, uh, on average, and it's uh, it, the program is growing, and I'm very happy to to tell your audience as well, Frank, that now my American friends can apply for a Nuffield scholarship because Nuffield is available in the U.S. as well. Right, and so we've had we, so we've had Nuffield scholars come from uh, Delaware, from the Carolinas, from the great state of Iowa, from California, and uh, so it, it's gaining a foothold in the U.S. And we're always we're always looking for people to step up and uh, be part of the Nuffield community. Well, that's great. It's been a great program. We did an article about you. You you spoke to the National Road Tillage Conference a few years back. Yes. So we did an article. And I want to read you a paragraph that pretty much sums up what we've talked about today. And our paragraph says, it's all about soil. Everything else doesn't matter. It's not about the planter attachments. It's not about the machinery. It's not about the seed. It's not the chemicals. It's not the fertilizer. It's getting back to the soil first, and then everything else will fall in place around that. I think that's a great comment you made. Well, thanks, Frank. And I, that still rings true this very day. And, you know, we, I hear so many farmers talk about, you know, being a real soil steward. And I wish that that was indeed true. And uh, I know everybody tries to do their business to the best of their ability, but I still see that there's lots of room for improvement. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that includes myself. Like I'm always trying to improve myself, but uh, and improve my lot in life and, and I, I always appreciate the opportunity to share and learn and, and uh, be part of the conversation. So I, I just simply want to say thank you for thinking of me and, and inviting me to share your podcast today. That was Blake Vince talking about cover crop use, rain shadows, and other issues relating to farming in Southern Ontario. Before we go, here's Frank Lesseter one more time. Another question that came up recently is what's holding back no-till. I look back in the history book and this is something that we wrote in 1981. What's holding back no-till? And uh, the Conservation Technology Information Center listed seven reasons why no-till is not caught on faster among U.S. farmers. 
and most of these ideas still hold water today. Number one is the conflicting agendas among farmers, educators, government officials, and suppliers about the value of no-tilling, although it's much better than it was back in 1981. Number two is the concern about the economic payback from no-tilling, which I think most no-tillers have shown there's no drop-off in yield and you're cutting expenses. Number three is acceptance of the 25 to 30% labor-saving benefit in no-till, which is much higher among growers in Latin America than in North America, but we're making progress there. We're seeing more precision and we've got autonomous tractors coming, which are going to help us save the labor situation. Number four, back in 1981, soybeans were more favorable for successful no-till than corn. I think people would argue today that they're both easy to do with uh, no-till if you know what you're doing. Number five was site-specific solutions are needed to gain acceptance with no-till corn due to cool, wet planting conditions in some areas of the corn belt. That's still a concern with some people, but then we got other people making it work. Number six, more intensive and profitable rotations need to be combined with no-till in the Great Plains. We've got a ways to go on this, particularly in the Corn Belt, where corn and soybeans are kind of what we have, and that's not quite what a diverse crop rotation should be with no-till. And then finally, number seven, there will be faster adoption of cover crops in the southern U.S. before no-till will become widely adapted. We're making some progress on cover crops, but we still got a long ways to go. That's it for this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, Source by Sound Agriculture, for helping to make the series possible. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. That's no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. A transcript of this episode will be available there shortly. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessitermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. I know No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lesser would also love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations shaping today's practices. Please email your questions for Frank to listenermail all one word, at no-tillfarmer.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert when we release a new one. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening, and keep it no-till.